Bookworm Games, episode 53, That Very Warmth. By now, it's abundantly clear that the narration by our heroes is no interlude, but integral to the presentation of the story in Disc 2. Oddly, the music that sets off the next bit of the exposition is the flight theme, though sitting and narrating would seem to be the furthest thing from it. But remember where we left off. Emperor Cain, incapacitating the elders' orbs with purple lightning, admonishes them to allow the living to take the helm. Flight. And in fact, we'll actually get to play through a little dungeon or two in the next couple of chapters. Soul Vessel and the Stars Know. These are the anima dungeons, so-called for the relics which all of a sudden become our party's objective to recover. It's a bit like the sudden narrowing of focus that came with the destruction of the three gates to Solaris, only more so, as this time there's actually only two. We get information from some vague place with archaic records, either in Shivat or somewhere they know about anyhow, and this sends us to the first dungeon, a vaguely Zeboimish place like a hangar. We can choose our own party. Bringing Satan, you'll see that with his sword, he has also deployed that Omnigir of his, Fenrir. There's no apparent explanation for what happened to the other gear, Heimdall, nor why he waited until now to unleash this one. In Norse myth, the wolf Fenrir is bound by the gods, for it is prophesied that he will devour Odin and be loose at Ragnarok. Both the binding and the loosing, the death of God motif, together fit the bill for Xenogears. There's also a sense in which Satan has been fighting with one hand behind his back all along, and has not been entirely trustworthy, like the god Tyr, who lures Fenrir to his chain in the first place by placing his hand in the wolf's mouth, only to lose it in the bargain. The Yamame sword on sale here offers a slight upgrade to his default weapon, and it gives us a lovely image if we take the literal translation of that word to mean salmon or even more literal, mountain girl. That's nice. The whole point of the dungeon, of course, is to acquire another Omnigear by joining the anima relic to one of the party's gears. And, of course, to prevent Solaris from acquiring it. It's a little odd, then, that though you can upgrade your gears out in the hangar by talking to shopkeep Johnny... One of a long line of merchants, he says, with no other explanation for where he came from or why he's there, but clearly occupying that role that Hammer and the Nissan merchant in Fort Jasper have held before him. And though we can ride around this area, picking up a few treasures, the main exploration and all of the combat here, I think, actually take place outside of the gears. They take place on foot. The puzzles are limited to fetching a fuse part here and interpreting a visual code there, uh, doing a little number crunching calculation, 
and spatial recognition according to some very difficult to interpret rules scattered around in the computer banks so as to figure out how we're supposed to proceed. The enemies are tough, but again, they're not that tough beside the power of Satan and the rest of your party at this point. Nor are they terribly compelling thematically. Through the corridors, up and down the elevators, there's a final tunnel with an elaborate series of airlocks, and then the chamber with the anima relic. It's a uh, point at which Billy and Ellie approach, whether they've been in your party this point or not. Uh, Billy hears the technology calling to him. It looks like the granddaddy of all memory cubes with the Masonic eye from the top of a pyramid and the solidity of the monolith in 2001 A Space Odyssey. Whatever powers it might have in itself, by calling to Billy, the anima relic merges with his gear. A limitation it takes on to itself, a binding to the created thing. On the way out, to check out the new Omnigear, we're confronted by the elements once more. The heartless, meritocratic worldview of Ramses's faction, which has been alluded to before in Satan and Sigurd's talk back in Nissan about why they left Solaris, gets more fully articulated here. It explains, I think, why Ellie is supposed to be there. And she counters them with her revelation of the value of human weakness. According to her argument, former surface dwellers who work in a team, like the elements, should naturally be receptive to the plight of their fellows who have been so unintentionally and unfortunately transformed. They are not amenable to persuasion by her words. Even these words from a newly awakened saint. They can only settle this dispute by fighting, it seems. It's not clear what there is to fight about at this point. With the unification of Billy's gear and the anima relic, there's no reversing, or so it would seem, so they can't be fighting to get the relic back. We know that the gear's no good to them without his conscious attention, because that's how Omnigears work. But curiously, neither Billy nor Ellie are going to participate in this fight if they've not already been in your party that you chose to begin with. So it's three against four this time. You're outnumbered, just as you were against the Sufal Mass. But elemental death blows this time are your friend. They deal heavy damage against their complementary targets, or you can use elemental spells. And the fight on foot is a breeze. Most of the ladies will be out of commission before they even have a turn, if your party's a fast one. Of course, Dominia has to be the last one you fight, or else you're stuck. Um, by now, between Satan's sword and his naturally high speed or agility stats, the player will have realized that speed and power are far and away the deciding factors in this game's battle system. As much as earlier on it was ether doubling that could break the game. 
though, you'll want to have a high defense stat just in case they do land a hit on you. Uh, a few points of defense can make a big difference, actually. But it's very likely, given the importance of power and speed at this point, that neither Billy nor Ellie are going to be in your party. That too, though, is a decision the designers made to make it as it were the spectators and spokespeople rather than the participants here. The battle is not really a struggle for survival. It's a statement, not of supremacy, but of loyalty, of love and dedication for the elements to their commander. Though they have no more hope of defeating Fay and the others, than Ramses does. And like with the Yggdrasil 4 transformation, we get another of these mech anime-inspired sequences as the four elements' gears combine to form the G elements, summoning their sword for good measure. One interesting thing to note here is the localization of their names obscures the fact that each of the girls is named for an order of angels. Dominions, thrones, seraphim, and cherubim. Their sword, like Satan's, retains a Japanese name. Kishin, wrathful or fierce deity, like in Majora's Mask, or the name of Id's deathblow move. The combination here is a lively one between angelic and demonic, between west and east, and Traditional RPG elemental scheme gets thrown in for good measure. Again, there's not much strategy to this fight, though towards the end, that sword can hit for pretty hefty damage. Your characters are so many times faster than their bulky opponent, and Faye's system id is maybe not the only infinity-level attacks at your disposal now. Um, the algorithm there seems to have to do with how much damage you take, as well as what level your uh, attack is at. It's a neat instantiation of Ellie's main point, that in weakness lies something greater than strength, something we see in the Zen and Taoist traditions, as well as the Judeo-Christian, for all their various hierarchies of angels and demons. Though the game doesn't actually do a very good job explaining how hypermode works at this point, uh, her evidence is more in the way that the elements come together out of their individual weakness, which is pretty neat. As a final gift, to go with all the stat-boosting drive and experience you've gleaned from your many fights with them, the elements bequeath their sword, or Satan, anyhow, recovers it. Though the paths are different, the goals are the same. And though it's showing off that they think she's showing them in her mercy, uh, Ellie insists that it's simple kindness. It's a recognition, that meaning of kind, of, of nature, of something shared. Calvina, anyhow apparently has learned her lesson from this. We'll see what Dominia takes from it. Song.
not the thing. And the verb Fay uses this time is that they fled from the elements. Hardly. Anyway, it seems there's just one anima relic left to be found. The scene shifts to the orb elders, apparently left alone by Cain after their recent drubbing to sulk and conspire. They murmur darkly about Cain defeating Cain and call Miang mother in scare quotes, whether ironically or in earnest, if those attitudes can even be applied to beings bereft of emotion. It's not clear. Krellian, whom they keep upbraiding for his vestiges of emotion where Ellie is concerned, has said something about the potential ability as a countervailing existence and about everything focusing towards a single point. Why Miang has to learn this from the elders rather than from Krellian himself is not clear either, but that language of the countervailing existence, again, makes me think of the mother and antitype that we've heard a little bit about. And this bit about focusing on a single point sounds kind of like wise men's lesson to Fay back in uh, Kislev before the championship bout. Miang replies in a way that helps clarify whom they might be talking about. She says that they need a little more time, that Ramses is still shaken up after his defeat by Veltaltu. And outside the door, wherever this is, it looks like they're aboard one of the Gebler airships. Dominia is there, eavesdropping along with us. She picks up on those same enigmatic phrases and goes to warn the commander. Whatever his inner shakenness, the Ramses we see seems full of them, ready to hunt Fay out. Though the elements try to block his way, he won't listen to Dominia's news and barge past them. The word for it is Fay, as in F-E-Y, those heroes in Tolkien ready to die, going out in a blaze of glory. That's what Ramses is. As for what happens next, Ellie narrates a bit from her chair. A stirring in her heart brought her back to Nissan, where the recovery is progressing, even on its way to total success. The nanomachines are evolving faster than Krellian's virus. Then there's a sudden explosion, and Ramses is there, attacking, ransacking, burning, beating up the defenders, including Rank and the other Gebler boys who have come over to the good guys. That would have been a fun battle to play out, the five of them getting wrecked by Vendetta. The people there take refuge in the cathedral. Apparently Fort Jasper is out of bounds. Ellie goes out to confront him. Ramses appears to be that countervailing existence, with his focus narrowed to the single point of his hatred for Faye. We get a stage play of the two of them in the void, and briefly, Rank and the others. In this agon, they pick up where Ellie's argument with the elements had left off. All the moral standing is hers, as we've seen. Even they, the elements, with their loyalty undiminished, tried to keep Ramses from this path which is ruining him. 
He is a ruin, she says. And yet, Ramses' desperation is so complete, we can't help pitying him, at least a little. Since Faye is not there, he goes to crush Ellie in the Omnigir's fist. What could be easier? He wants to hurt Faye through her. Yet, as she cries out and the screen fades to white, his gear is down. The same sort of thing we saw neutralizing the red gear of his nemesis. Suddenly, Margie is there beside Ellie. This other girl who got away from him so long ago in the desert castle to Ramses' disgust. Finally, unable to act, Ramses explains his fixation with Faye. From his infancy, he, Ramses, was created to be the ideal, to align with the twelve anima relics, to fulfill Cain's potential and all of humanity's. But he was thrown on the trash down in that area we saw in Solaris, down the dust chute. The implication, confirmed by the imagery here, is that Faye's birth was the cause of this. From the dark, cold abyss of worthlessness, Ramses says with bitter pride, he went crawling out, finding warmth, though Faye has taken it from him. Earlier in the game, he called that light down, I think, in the depths of the sea when they fought. He said, as long as Faye's alive, there's no light for him. But Ellie rightly denies this zero-sum concept and talks Ramses through his fear of abandonment, his fear of human kindness. He calls that warmth that Ramses so craves by the name love. Ramses can't name it, but only seems to feel for it blindly as these physical things. We see Krellian and Faye's mother Karen in the lab then, looking at the specimen in the chamber. If this is Carr's memory, it places him in the position of Emeralda, practically. It's a deeply affecting image of the life that might have been frozen as an impossibly distant memory whose meaning remains to be worked out. Once again, jumping ahead to after Ramses returns from this abortive assault on Nisan, he is dismissed as trash by the elders. <laughs> More worthless than trash. That many-tongued voice of despair that tells him not to even bother to exist is the opposite of Ellie's pity and understanding. In his misunderstanding of love as something you take or have taken from you, Ramses is eminently susceptible to Krellion and Miang's manipulation now, to their plan to have him strike down the emperor in place of Fay the father figure and not the usurper brother. For they'd say, Cain is holding him back from his true power, which he will inherit on the fall of the father. 
Sigmund's next chapter, in many ways, the parallel to this last one. We segue back, once again, to Fay and Flight, introducing us to the search for the final relic. These MacGuffins have blatantly obvious capability as weapons, given the augmented power of Billy's gear, and they must not be allowed to fall into the hands of Solaris. As if Solaris even exists as an entity anymore. But what are they really for? This question hangs over our exploration of the ruins of the first civilization on the planet, 10,000 years old. A hint is given in the nature of the changes to Billy's gear. That mental link we know Omnigears exhibit, the human then merged with the inorganic. Or for another image of it, the way Nikolai, Maria's father, was forced to research and ultimately undergo much more brutally. At the end of this dungeon, we're told, we meet an old friend, scare-quoted. We see shopkeep Johnny there in the cavern. This old friend is not him, but not that far off either. This penultimate dungeon of the game, leaving only that of the final boss and well, a couple of short side quests, treats us to much more thematically rich adventuring than the short maze of the previous anima relic. The aesthetic here is less suboim than Indiana Jones. The obstacles comprise a greatest hits compilation of everything we've seen so far in this and countless other video games. In the first cavernous room, there's a gap which is somehow too far to jump that we know gears can fly. There's a boulder blocking a small door. Within, we find three stones to open the way forward, like the three gates in miniature. They pop out according to the hints hidden here and there, arbitrary and yet somehow satisfying. The next big cavern, again, requires us to solve puzzles in small side rooms. One has the ceiling falling. Show courage and stand your ground, says the trap door as it drops you down. The trap itself is the way forward. By avoiding it, we cannot proceed, as in so many RPGs where we must take a fall for the sake of the story, so as to have that redemption arc that we so crave, just like the perfect threes of every fairy tale. To go ahead straight to the treasure boxes in the one hallway is to invite another fall into the dark. But, once more, as you fall down one of the chutes, you can reach a ledge you'd never find without having fallen. And then, once you stand your ground beneath the spikes, you rise with the resetting ceiling. All that's left is the water level puzzle. The interface is not the most convenient, but the instructions are fairly clear this time. We want to find a happy medium, that is, by adding and subtracting until we arrive at the middle height, 5 out of 10, which will trigger the draining of the water from the main room as well. Though, wasn't it not that long ago our gears were all fitted with deep-sea diving apparatus? Anyway, we love being in the middle. Huh. It would be nice if the game gave you some hint 
at this point that you'd better unequip Ellie of anything rare and valuable, say an ether doubler, or better yet, if the game just automatically did that for you. But we know we're close to the relic, anyhow, because of the locks leading to it that pop open just as before. Rico joins you this time, along with Ellie. So ancient people worshipped meaningless things too, he says. A little harsh, given the obvious meaningfulness that Faye has already pointed out with respect to Billy's gear. And yet, there's an appropriate tone of skepticism here for many a player, I don't doubt. If we recall, Kislev's relationship with the religious institutions in this world has been fraught all along, and even with Rico's own distaste for Kislev, he's bound to have absorbed some of that atmosphere of hostility from his homeland. His unbelief, or bravado, is met here in the most direct manner, however. Voices speaking in his head, words he cannot quite understand. And then leaving him with his own vision of an Omnigear. An image he's seen before somewhere, like that memory brought on by his mother's scent in her sealed room in the capital before it became a dimensional giant gear. Uh, then the relic vanishes. Once again, it's worth pointing out the Jungian uh, element here of the anima, that aspect of oneself, which is in some way complementary, uh, is somehow other and communicates, albeit not as clearly as uh, ordinary communication, but then somehow can become conscious over time. This time, on the way out of the ruins, it's Hammer who rises up from the depths to confront the party. In a twist on the shadow or the unconscious or the anima, and a twist on the transformation motif that's played out by the elements. He has been merged, not with a anima relic or with another friend, uh, companion. No, he's been merged with his gear directly, thanks to Krellian. His power now is extraordinary. He says he's just like you. In his words, we can hear the flip side of that hierarchy of competence argument put forward by Ramses. We can hear the resentment of the normal, the weak, the dismissed. But again, rather than hearkening to Ellie's revelations of the inherent worth of all people and the true power of compassion, Hammer has thrown his lot in with the still more extreme Krellian, the ultimate elitist who would transcend humanity altogether. Give up the gear and the girl, he says, going full arch-villain mode. This is probably the hardest fight in the game to this point. 
there's two or three different ways this battle can go, actually. In the first few rounds, this relatively slight foe, who you're inclined to underestimate, undergoes a horrific transformation, putting out tentacles and a scorpion tail, which, besides being horrifying, greatly augment his actual power. As you pare down Hammer's health, he delivers a final stage of wrath and signals you'd better escape before a self-destructive death blow lands. And if you run, the battle ends. The story proceeds. If you somehow survive the immense damage he does, you get the same outcome as if you had run. You get a single point of experience. But if you manage to take him down with your strongest attacks before the time runs out, Hammer's loss is your great gain. You're rewarded with tons of experience and with the traitor card. This, it seems, is the secret of his success as a merchant and a, in, uh, uh, well, a rat. <laughs> so long as it's equipped, you will always earn the rarest possible items from battles. Against all odds, this crucially includes the haste shoes you can win from fighting with some snail-type enemies in the woods near Tora's house. Um, and it also includes certain weapons and armor that you get from a few even more difficult boss battles to come for those completionists out there. That's my bro, he says, still far too strong. Even if you weren't using Rico, um, Hammer directs his final speech to this friend and idol of his. Go back to Nortune, he tells you. You're next in line as Kaiser. So we get another kind of distorted image of the uh, Ramses and Cain dynamic here. Don't underestimate his information network. Hammer knows. But a bit player, he calls himself. This is the end he probably deserves, he acknowledges. In Faye's reflection on this, with the image of Hammer falling into the chasm projected behind him, he brings our character's involvement in this chapter to a close. Hammer disappeared into the chasm with a look of satisfaction. Was he happy because he had been able to attain it, his brief moment of power? Hammer's smile. Was that the look of joy from attaining power, or was it the look of relief from the pain that was brought upon him by his mutation? Ultimately, we had no other choice but to defeat our friend, Hammer, for the sake of our own survival. Was there any other way around it? I've never felt that fighting was so futile until now. Of course, the irony is that in this case, they actually do flee from the self-destructing enemy. Uh, most likely, unless you are really dedicated to getting that traitor card. Um, we also hear in that brief moment of power, a, an echo of Groff 
seeker of power, strongly suggested as an analog, though he's not referenced, nor does he make an appearance. It's also a pretty clear contrast with the elements battle just prior. In this case, Ellie is inconsolable, for they were not able to give mercy to their friend. Faye thinks to himself, she can't be allowed to continue fighting. And indeed, she will be removed from your party from here on out. In the necessity of survival, the futility of violence still abides. Doesn't this make them like Ramses, fighting as if it were a zero-sum competition? In the starkest possible terms, these themes are all trotted out here. The reckoning with Ramses and with Graf himself are still to come. The chapter concludes with the end of this Ramses-Cain arc that we've seen develop here. This shadow of Faye runs through his archetype as the orbs run through the relics' names that turn out to be the 12 tribes of Israel. We hear, yep, we've got the persona of the mother, we've got the key, we are ready. Everything is coming together, and we'll see what happens when it does. Thanks again for listening.